not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like The Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my recently released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I am holding space for a fellow from Tampa, Florida with 25 years of recovery. His name is Ben Heldvon, and he is here to share his story with us. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Gene. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, as we were talking before, uh, hit and record, I'm a huge fan uh, for, for how you are sharing uh, the message of recovery uh, and, and the possibilities and, and, and that it is possible. So uh, uh, as somebody in recovery, I'm grateful uh, to you and honored to be on your show. Thank you so much. That means a ton to me, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time today to share your story and your message of hope with others. Let's jump right into it, Ben. Tell us about yourself. Tell us your story. Uh, well, uh, without doubt, uh, my name is Ben, and I am an alcoholic and an addict. Uh, I got sober on November 3rd, 1994 uh, in San Francisco. Um, I do live in Tampa, Florida, but I am from San Francisco, and I probably will be uh, uh, saying that for the rest of my life, although I've lived in Tampa for 20 years. Uh, but, I, but I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I, I grew up to a, you know, a pretty normal family. I guess it, <laughs> the, the, the uh, definition of normal depends, uh, but there was uh, it, it, a great family, brother, sister, uh, mother and father were together. Um, and, uh, I, I went to kindergarten and this is, I, I tell the story not so cause I'm going to go through every grade, uh, <laughs> that, that, that I had, but, but in kindergarten, I, I went through my first year, second year, uh, where I was supposed to go to first grade in the summer, my mom came in and, and, and said that they were going to hold me back. Um, and, and so basically I flunked kindergarten. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just remember that first day of school going back and, and all the friends that I had that went on to first grade, I had to go to the kindergarten class. And it was the first time I remember, uh, that feeling, that feeling of not being a part of, uh, not feeling like I belong, feeling different. And I didn't like it. And I didn't like it from, and it stuck with me, uh, all these years later. So, so it was definitely an impactful moment in my life. And, uh, you know, through school, I, I, uh, always something wrong with Ben, you know, uh, I got tested and, and anyways, I came up with uh, dyslexia my parents, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD, I guess they would call it today. Um, and, uh, nothing was really done. It was just sort of said, Oh, Ben has dyslexia. Um, and that was it. And so I remember sitting in, in school, grade school, um, and, and the teacher would start doing something on the, you know, reading something or doing a math problem, uh, in front of the class. And I wouldn't get it. I wouldn't understand it. Um, and so what I did was I daydreamed and, and, and why, why I tell that story 
is because I hadn't found drugs or alcohol yet, but the effect was the same. And, and what I mean by that is physically I could be in that room, in that classroom, but mentally I was somewhere else. And I didn't have those voices in my head saying, you're dumb. You're not smart like the other kids, uh, you know, and all, all, all that negative talk went away when I daydreamed. Um, and then, uh, you know, th- throughout, uh, uh, it was sixth grade, seventh grade. I think I was at Molly Guggenheim's, uh, party, uh, birthday party. And her parents had, had taken out the furniture in, in, in the living room, but her dad had forgotten to take away. I, I want to say it was either port or cognac, you know, the stuff you put in that, the Baccarat crystal, um, and uh, my friends and I got into it. And, and I remember taking the f- uh, first sip of it and, and thinking that I had just drank gasoline or something and, and the burning uh, sensation. But then all of a sudden, the effect kicked in. And all of a sudden, I didn't have those thoughts. And I didn't just sort of like the daydreaming. Um, so we took another sip. And then all of a sudden, I started dancing. And then all of a sudden, I started talking to girls, which I'd never done. And, and basically, I became... Uh, I'd been to parties before, but I had sort of always been wallpaper and just sort of leaning against the wall, hopefully, I, hopefully uh, hoping I camouflaged myself into the wall. Um, but all of a sudden, I became the center of the party. Uh, no, you know, good looking, talking to girls, confident, all those things I'd never had before. And so then I took another sip and I took another sip uh, and, and eventually ended up throwing up all over Molly Guggenheim's uh, house. Uh, and her parents had to call my parents and had to come get me. And so right from the start, I, I got in trouble. Um, but but through the years and, and, and through high school, and, and I sort of learned uh, to manipulate my way. Uh, uh, and, and what happened at 13 years old were, were my parents got divorced. Um, all I remember um, were, were, were hearing them fight a lot uh, for a couple of weeks after we went to bed and they were in the living room fighting and screaming at each other, which I hadn't really heard before that, that or, or, you know, for that extended period of time. Uh, and then my dad and mom sitting us all down and saying he, he, he was moving, he was leaving the house and they were getting divorced. And this was two weeks before my bar mitzvah. And uh, it, it led to a very high conflict divorce. Um, and it just for the, uh, anybody who's been through that, uh, it is a terrible place to be uh, stuck in between your parents uh, as a weapon or blocking and tackling tool uh, when your parents are, uh, you know, talking bad about each other and you sit there as a 13, 14, 15 year old knowing not to say anything because you're going to make it worse. Uh, so just swallow it. Um, but it doesn't go away. And, and uh, but then uh, I quickly realized uh, that my parents weren't parenting uh, for fa- uh, parent of the year, they were parenting for favorite parent. And so my manipulative mind and my sort of, uh, you know, uh, street smarts or whatever you want to call it, I could get something out of this. I knew they weren't talking. I knew that they wanted to be favorite parent. So I used it to my advantage to get freedoms, to get more allowance to, you know, d- down the line, uh, about how much time mom made me study and debt. And so I was, you know, they were pitting me against each other. I was going to pit them against each other and, and use it to my advantage. And it was just, I don't blame my parents for my addiction, uh, uh you know, or my alcoholism. I think that it was going to be that way anyways. It just sort of accelerated it because it gave me freedoms that a 15, 16, 17 year old just shouldn't necessarily have. Um, 
and, uh, and, and so my disease progressed and, uh, I, I, I really, uh, was drinking at my parents. Uh, you know, it was all their fault. Um, that, you know, they were making us grow up way too quickly and, 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 and so on and so forth. And so, uh, on the other hand, growing up, I never really faced consequences because of this parent, favorite parent, right? So if I get in trouble, it was like, who, which parent was going to put on their cape and come save Ben, legal, school, whatever it was. Um, and, and so um, I went to college. I, I manipulated my way uh, to, to get in the University of California, Berkeley, because uh, for some reason I could still play sports and, you know, juggle all these things in my life. Uh, and uh, um, <clears throat> also this appearance on the outside that everything was okay. Um how could I have a problem when I got in the University of California, Berkeley and graduated? And so all, all the saying I got there, um, I was able to sort of juggle, like I said, all these responsibilities in life, uh, even as a 18 year old and uh, school girlfriend, soccer, um, and everything was fine. Uh, a disease was in there and, you know, it was like a ringmaster. Um, but as college went on and, and as we know, it's a progressive thing. Um, I started getting to heavier drugs and, uh, eventually one day, uh, a friend of mine came over and he had some heroin and it wasn't some big secret to me uh, of what it was, but there wasn't any, uh, like every other drug that was put in front of me, there was no window between the thought and the action of the consequences. And so he brought it over. I tried it and, uh, you know, first time I smoked it, second time I, uh, injected it and, uh, I was off to the races. I mean, the, the, the first time I injected it, I, you know, I thought I'd kiss Jesus. Um, and, and I, all of a sudden, everything I'd always been wanting to feel in life happened in that moment. There was no pain, mental, physical, spiritual, uh, no anything, numb. Um, and it happened so quickly. It wasn't like I had to sit around and wait for a pill to kick in or the, even the, you know, five minutes for the alcohol to kick in. It was instant. Um, the only problem is uh, I, I spent the next couple of years trying to feel that same way and I never got to feel that same way. And, uh, and so I, uh, the disease progressed and uh, I ended up uh, overdosing, uh, you know, clinically um, dead, uh, uh, standing over paramedics, you know, shooting me with the, the with the Narcan. Um, and yet all these things didn't uh, get me sober. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, it made me go to treatment um, for the first time uh, because all of a sudden the gig was up uh, and, and, you know, mom came to me and said, Hey, but behind door number one is love support, you know, all the other uh, treats of this family. Uh, and if you go to rehab and behind door number two is persona non grata, uh, you know, this tough love thing I wasn't really used to. <laughs> You know, living under the blanket of codependency was was a real warm, safe place to me. But all of a sudden, it wasn't there. And my mom was giving me an ultimatum. And so like any good addict alcoholic, I chose door number one and, and figured I could go to rehab and, you know, be okay and make her happy and still, uh, you know, do what I need to do. And I walked into the facility, sat down with the counselor, uh, and he told me, it's a pretty simple program. All you have to do is change your whole life. And uh, that's where my relapse began. Uh, right there. Uh, you know, I was uh, in treatment 28 days. 
uh, didn't do anything I was supposed to uh, either getting out or in the facility. You know, they, I was known as the everything's cool guy. I, and finally on the way out, I, I asked myself, I said, why do you call me the everything's cool guy? Um, and, and they said, because in group, uh, you'd be able to tell everybody what they needed to do uh, and what page in the big book to go and read about it because, you know, I'm a, I'm a con man. Like I, I pick up these things and these page numbers and, and I'm able to put it all together to sound at least uh, what I thought was like the AA guru or, or the 12 step guru. Right. Um, and then when it got to me, I'd be everything's cool and not want to take a look at myself. And, and so I went out uh, of course and left there and didn't do anything I was supposed to do and, and ended up relapsing uh, within a couple months. And, uh, finally, it, it, I don't know what happened. It wasn't an overdose. It wasn't an arrest. It wasn't any of the other, quote, exterior things that had happened to me during my career. Um, it was just I woke up one morning and I was done. And I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and uh, really, truly understood what the word incomprehensible demoralization meant. Uh, and, and I felt it to the core. Um, and, and I knew that I had a... a joint session with that therapist from the first uh, 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 intake of the treatment facility who told me it's quite easy. All you have to do is change your whole life. I went to go see him as a condition that my mom put. uh, So I was seeing him for five months, uh, three of, or no, I'm sorry, eight months, five of which I was high uh, going to see him. So I knew that I was a joint session that day with my mom and, and, and his name was Mike. Um, and I started off the meeting and I said that I had relapsed and Mike started laughing. Uh, and he said, I was wondering how long it was going to take you to, uh, you know, to, to, to cop up. And, and, and so anyways, at that point in my life, uh, all of a sudden, uh, this thing, uh, called de- willingness from desperation, uh, occurred. And, uh, you know, I went and I, I cleaned up at a, at a detox and they told me I needed to go to, uh, this halfway house and, and I went, um, and, and, um, that willingness, you know, I, I reached that point where I was willing to do whatever, um, people talked about, people told, you know, people suggested, uh, and, and for the most part, I can't say even close to a hundred percent, but that, uh, for the most part has been a, a theme, uh, in my recovery for the past 25 years. So I was, you know, 21 years old, 22 years old when I got sober, um, had this idea about uh, 12 steps and the program. It was, it was just for old Irish men. Um, but I started meeting young people, right. And, and, uh, went to young meetings and got involved with, uh, young people's groups and started to have fun. Uh, and, and I don't know if it were, uh, weren't for the, the, the part of this deal called fellowship, uh, if I'd still be here today, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I don't like to play the what if games too much, but what really hooked me was the relatedness to another human being, uh, and the understanding that both of you have been to hell and back and are fighting every day, not to get, uh, you know, uh, to go back. Um, and that happens with, uh, that happened with people my age and it happened with older people, but, but the people my age was really what, and the, you know, after the meetings and, and in between who, you know, completely changed my perception of what a true friend was or what friendship meant or what being there for another human being really meant. Um, cause I quickly found out that whenever I reached my hand out, there was someone there to grab it. 
and vice versa. When anybody ever reached their hand out, I made sure that I was there to grab it. Um, and, and, and so that's what really hook, line, and sinkered me, that, that I learned to have fun. I learned to laugh. Uh, I, I learned that I didn't need, that uh, girls could possibly like me um, without drinking or doing drugs. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I was in the middle of the boat. I was connected. Um, and, and then I met this woman. Um, and we dated for a couple of years and, and, and then, uh, one day she came to me and told me her family was moving to Florida. Uh, I'd lived my whole life in San Francisco. My whole, uh, network was in San Francisco support group in San Francisco. Um, but I was young, dumb and in love and, and I didn't think about consequences, uh, and, and uh, decided to, it's yeah, this is the woman for me. Uh, you know, I'm 27, 28 years old. Uh, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get married. Even though I had gone through and both of us had gone through every single red light flashing, you know, warning sign, the railroad tracks that go down, we just blasted through all of them. And whatever God was putting in front of me, we just went right through. And, 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 you know, that age, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to society. And and so we, I moved, uh, I picked up and I, I moved to Tampa, Florida and I got here and, uh, they did meetings differently. Um, although the program was the same, the people were different. Um, you know, pretty much take my perception of it anyways, uh, 180 degrees in the other direction of San Francisco and you got Tampa, Florida. Um, and all of a sudden it became more and more staying away from meetings. Um, uh, more and more not being in the middle of the boat, like I had been all of a sudden it became my ex-wife's fault, my wife's fault. She moved me here. You know, like she had uh, held a gun to my head and, you know, tied me up and threw me on the plane. But that's the space that I was in. It was her fault. All her fault. Um, And, you know, I became this dry drunk. You know, one of the the biggest fears I had, uh, uh, you know, uh, going in the program and and, uh, hearing what happens to people who don't go to meetings, at meetings. Um, and, And I had become that person. And, and, uh, caused a lot of wreckage, uh, and, uh, we, you know, we're always trying to, if onlys, uh, of the world, uh, you know, and, and if only we did this, if only we moved houses, if only we had a son, if only, you know, then we could save the marriage. Uh, and it, it, much like everything in life, nothing from the outside, not even our beautiful son, uh, could make it better. And so, um, because I wasn't good. I wasn't better, uh, as, as a man, as a father, as a husband. Um, and so I left the house, um, and, and we got divorced and I left angry. And like I said, it was all Nikki's fault. Um, and, uh, I was, uh, determined to let everybody know, uh, it was all Nikki's fault. I was determined to, uh, expose her for the fraud, uh, that she was and, and little asterisks, the thought, the fraud that I thought she was. Uh, and so I went out and I hired this big fancy lawyer and, uh, I was going to let everybody know. And he wrote up this, you know, war and peace plan, uh, on, uh, basically a strategic attack plan to do what I wanted him to do. And he was gladly take my money to do that. Um, and, and so there was part of me, I, he gave it to me, this 30 page document, for whatever reason, I didn't open it for, for like two weeks. 
and it sat in my backpack and, uh, I was on a plane back from LA. Um, and I started reading, uh, the, the, this, uh, document and, and I got about two pages into it. Um, and the first time in, in many years, um, I got honest and I got honest with myself and, uh, I could see, uh, the real, um, true deal. And, uh, there is no way that, and I think part of it has to do with the foundation that I built, uh, and, and, you know, but for the grace of God, uh, and, and for me, that's a lowercase G, not an uppercase G, uh, if you're just listening, um, for the first time, and this is your first experience hearing somebody, uh, you know, talk about, uh, uh, God, um, for me, that's good orderly direction. Uh, that's me not making my own decisions because as you just heard, when I make my own decisions, that's the wreckage I cause. Um, but it was the first time in my life that I was able to get honest with myself and understand that there's no way this could be all Nikki's fault, that it takes wherever I have a resentment, wherever I have, uh, uh, towards somebody that I have a part in it. Um, and it was, it was, it was such a, it was almost like that moment I had, you know, when I woke up that morning, uh, and, and got honest with my, uh, about my use and the willingness. Um, and the crazy thing is I already knew the path that that book or that document led to, um, cause I had lived it. That document led to what I had to go through with my parents and yet that's the power of resentment. That's the power of untreated, you know, uh, a disease um, is that I was so blinded by fear, by my ego, by romance and finance and all this stuff that I was willing uh, consciously or not to go to, to put my son down the same path that I had gone down as a child um, and, and, and make him pay the emotional bill uh, for my decision, for Nikki's decisions, uh, of, you know, ordering off the menu or whatever, when he had no choice in any of it. So anyways, I, I got back, uh, to town. I called the lawyer. I said, I, I need to find a different way. Um, and, uh, could he send me the balance of my retainer back? And, uh, you know, quite conveniently, I got a check a couple of days later for a few hundred dollars. Um, and my Nikki, my ex always says he probably just has a standard form that he sends to everybody and changes the name. Um, but at that point it's like, okay, now what? I don't know. I know one path. I don't know, uh, any other. Um, and so, but what I did know is I was in no, uh, space, no, frame of mind, no spiritual, uh, uh, principles at all in my life at that point to make any life decisions, much less the, 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 uh, long, hard process of a divorce. Um, and so I called Nikki, I said, I just need some time. Um, you know, I need some time to work on myself. I need some time to uh, you know, go to, she understood, she was not, uh, uh, she's not in the recovery, but she understood, you know, she, because of, you know, being with me, she understood it. And, and so I got back to basics, you know, I got back to, uh, you know, going to 90 meetings in 90 days. I, I started working with my sponsor, 
um, and we did a uh, inventory. Um, and that inventory uh, was just around the relationship primarily. There were other issues in my life, but primarily around my relationship with Nikki. Uh, and then I read it. And about halfway through, if halfway through, uh, reading it to him, it hit me. I wouldn't want to be married to me either. I was a miserable person. Um, I was, like I said, I wasn't the father, the man, the person that I wanted to be. Um, and to lay it at Nikki's feet was untreated uh, disease. Uh, and, 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 you know, the saying, when you point one finger at somebody three or pointing back at you was, was so perfect for this, uh, for this situation. And so, you know, the next step was making amends and and, and calling, uh, Nikki. Uh, she hadn't heard from me. Obviously we talked because we were still out of the house and the the custody of, of our son, but we weren't dealing with, the divorce part of it yet. We were just, you know, I was tr- trying to get healthy in the right frame of mind to not make these decisions in the frame of mind I was. So I called her, I asked her coffee. Um, we sat down um, and uh, she had no idea um, of what was going to happen. Uh, she just knew, you know, the band for the last, uh, you know, six years uh, or so. Uh, and I, I told her I loved her. And I uh, apologized. Uh, I don't know. This always gets me, but uh, you know, I apologized for my part uh, in the uh, marriage. I said I understand. Uh, you know, all 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 the good stuff, <laughs> and, and laid it out there. Uh, and, and and then she in turn, I went in there, and I think it's so important w- w- with uh, the amends with with no preconceived notions of the outcome. Like I didn't all of a sudden think that everything was really great. We were going to be these, you know, perfect co-parents together. Um, But I did it because I knew we couldn't go down the path of a breakup or divorce uh, in the frame of mind of making decisions in the past. Right. Uh, And so I needed, I needed to clean up that wreckage and I needed to know, I needed her to know that it wasn't her fault. Um, and so I was able to do it at that moment. Uh, and then she in turn apologized to me and we joke. Uh, and I don't think it's actually, uh, that funny because it's true, but it was the first and only time we've actually uttered those words, uh, to each other in the 20, uh, years we've known each other, 22. Um, but from that moment, I mean, you talk about space at that moment, there was some space. It didn't all of a sudden get better but there was some space uh, because we weren't living in the past. And all of a sudden we saw uh, the present. We were there. And and when you're there as a human being, I think we all have the right, the capability and the capacity to be honest. Uh, I'm sorry, to be happy. Um, but that has to be in the present, living in the present. You, uh, for me, I can't be happy if I'm living in the, in, in the past or living in the future. And so at that moment, uh, it, there was just a friend. Now did, we didn't click our heels and all of a sudden, um, you know, we had this great relationship. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, faking it until we make it until we made it. But we decided that we at that moment had singleness of purpose. And, and just like, uh, the program, the only primary purpose is to stay sober. 
When you have that, all the other stuff doesn't matter, right? Problems in the world today uh, is because there's no singleness of purpose. There's either us, you're either with us or you're against us, us first them, right and wrong and all this stuff. But there's no singleness of purpose. But Nikki and I were able to create singleness of purpose with our son that the primary purpose of what we were doing on this planet was to not make him have to suffer the uh, consequences of our decisions. And so 13 years later, um, we have a great relationship. We're best friends. She's remarried. I'm remarried. Um, But I was able to get back on track um, with the program. And I think that's the... Uh, a silver lining here is, uh, has it been perfect since then? No. I mean, I, I, I wish I could tell you this is a tale uh, of 25 years of doing it exactly um, to the T or exactly like the manual says, uh, but uh, it's not. And, you know, during this COVID uh, ordeal, um, you know, I, I find myself and thank God that I have now two women in my life who are able to call me out on my BS, my ex-wife and my wife who happen to be best friends um, and, and, and sit me down and say, you're slipping dude, you know, and, and, and I'm able to be honest enough to say, you're right. You know, some of the same behaviors uh, are, you know, sort of manifesting itself uh, from, from the ending uh, of Nikki relationship. And as we know, uh, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And so I don't want to, uh, go through another divorce. I love my wife. She loves me, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but I, you know, there's only so much people can take. And, and if we can learn from our mistakes, they're not mistakes. Right. Uh, and, and so, that's where we are today, you know, um, and my life today is is beyond uh, what I could possibly have even imagined. Just like every sort of major milestone in my life, uh, including the divorce, um, it, it is that if after that coffee shop meeting, if you had written down what uh, Nikki and I wanted out of our divorce, um, I think it would have just been to be in the same room together. Just like if you had me write, write down, which I did in, in rehab, what I imagine my life would be like without drugs and alcohol. Uh, it, it was simple. It was just that I didn't want to be wake up every morning and have that be the center of my life. And also that was a simple, small target. And I overshot that by a mile. We overshot what we had wanted from our divorce by a mile. And it was just showing up. It, and both of them are very parallel uh, because it was just showing up and having that singleness of purpose. And, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, putting somebody before you. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so our life and uh, t- today, um, th- this COVID thing has been a, st- a struggle on everybody. Um, and, and we all sort of have had our cross to bear and handled it differently. Um, you know, I'm one to go in my cave. Uh, and, uh, you know, it seemed, uh, that I had been spending more and more time in my cave over the COVID and, and sort of slacking on my responsibilities again, as a man, as a father, um, and the sort of stays, if you will, in the cave or staying longer and longer and longer. And I was, I, I was, I was not being present in my life, in my wife's life and my kid's life. Um, but 
you know, th- uh, uh, th- that that's sort of the beauty of this deal is, is, you know, although that could be, you know, sort of playing with fire is that I'm able to get back on track. I'm able to get back on path if I get back to that point of honesty and admitting that there's a problem. Um, so I'm just, you know, to, to, to be able to be more than half my life, um, you know, free from drugs and alcohol and, and be an individual who just took, 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 took from society and broke the law. And, uh, all of a sudden I put down the drink and the drug and I've been a somewhat, uh, you know, positive member of, of society. I think it's fair to say over the past, uh, you know, 25 years. And, uh, so that's sort of, you know, my, my story in a nutshell. Oh, thank you, Ben. You tell your story so well. I can tell you've you've done a lot of work um, through the program and a lot of self-reflection to be able to tell your story with so much um, insight, and uh, you're very humble about it. I want to take you back and ask you about a mm-hmm. couple of things you said. Um, in talking about when you first got divorced or were first getting divorced and you were telling everybody your story, um, we get hooked on our stories and our stories, the idea of letting go of stories is something that comes up in recovery. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And how do we know when we're stuck in a loop and why is it hurtful to us? Of uh, relationships or just in life? You know, I think in the story, I loved how you explained that, you know, you were telling everybody your story because you had a version of it <laughs> Oh, right. that suited your narrative and your role exactly. in it all. So, and it yeah. could be, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about relationships, you it's know, life. I had, no, right. Absolutely. I used to tell a story about my fence and I would just, if someone even looked at the fence, I was like, have I told you about that fence? <laughs> and then, and then, and then if you're like me, you start to look for evidence to back up your theory. And, and so, so you, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I, I felt like I needed to stop and, and, and make a disclaimer when I use the word God. Right. Um, and, and that's because when I first got to the program, I had this story that AA or 12-step program was a cult. And so that was my story. And so I would be, you know, in meetings uh, for the that first time around uh, and I would just be listening. And every time somebody said God, I'd say, see, I told you. And so, and that sort of transcends its way to, uh, th- through the rest of, of, of my life. If I had this story about my ex, you know, that it was all her fault or that she was a certain way, I would just be looking for evidence to back up that theory. You know, if she said something, you know, I have this story that my mom's controlling right? That's sort of this overarching thing that's been, uh, for the 47 years I've been on this planet. But, <laughs> but, but sometimes when I'm not in a great space, when she does something, I, I use it and I say, see, she is. And, I, and that's the, that, that is all I am listening for is just evidence to back up my theory. Um, and, and that's a dangerous, dangerous, uh, area for me to be in, but, but to be able to, uh, also recognize it, and, and maybe sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly with me, sometimes slowly. Um, but, you know, I think it, at least to understand that it's a story. Um, and, and, and look, if you look, if you look at, you know, the different pair of glasses that, that you can see anything um, or that you can hear anything and you can tell yourself any story 
uh, that you want. Um, especially if you, you know, want to listen from that standpoint. So, yeah. I love what you say about your mom and you've kind of call yourself out on looking for evidence that she's controlling because I feel like this is what makes our relationships with other people in recovery so helpful is that we don't have this background with them and they didn't typically, you know, ride along with us through all of the whatever destruction was caused during, you know, active addiction so that they're meeting us where we're at on that day. And they just accept us for where we're at without saying, you know, Ben, you were always like that or nope, that's not how you are, you know. (laughs) Or or they have the beautiful thing, you know, I think I talk about is the relatedness, right? Or uh, then they understand what it's like to maybe think that your mom's controlling or, you know, or to tell ourselves these stories that it's, you know, their fault or whatever. But because the one thing is that pretty much, we're all like, you know, the, the, the drinking and the drugging were just symptoms, right? The, the, the disease is this, you know, spiritual thing that even doctors can't figure out and, and, but it's real. And, and, and the idea of, of relating to somebody like, Oh, you tell yourself that story too, or you use that, you know, evidence to, you know, back up your theory too, which is, which is why it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, uh, sometimes being in that recovery space encourages us to not just peel back the layers on our own behaviors and um, habits, but to challenge the way we see the people around us. So when you say mom is controlling, I say maybe mom is afraid. Mm. And um, it's hard to see that. It's easy for me to see that because I don't know your mom. Right. But I know me. And when I'm controlling my family, it's because I'm fearful for them and And, I'm afraid for them because I love them. And and And, that's so important. I mean, that is such an insightful thing. And to have people, and and this is what happens to me when I'm not in the middle of the boat, when I'm auditing the program, is I don't have those people around me as much to call me out or to relate or to. Right. And then all of a sudden the stories become realer and realer and realer. Uh, and, and instead of having somebody say exactly what you just said and calling, you know, calling it for what it is. Um, and, and so that's why it's important for me uh, to not audit, to sit down, take the class and stay in the class. So you, some of the language that you use is very much... Um the 12-step vernacular. So I'm going to break that down a little bit because a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with it. And I'm only usually familiar with it from talking to guests on this show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you say not in the boat or auditing the program, explain what you mean by that. So there, there, yeah. And again, I I just want to, uh, if if people listened, uh, I've mentioned the program's name. Uh, I want to make it clear that I am not a spokesperson uh, for that program or for any program. Uh, they don't want me as a spokesperson. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't have spokespeople. Uh, you won't see a TV ad uh, on the t- television about uh, the 12-step program. Um, so I, I'm very careful. We have our 12 steps and we have our 12 traditions. Uh, one of them is attraction, you know, rather than promotion. So I'm not promoting it. Uh, but, but what I mean by that is there's a prescription. 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, people have different ways. You know, my my wife now is sober. She doesn't, you know, go to meetings, but she has her own way. So, uh, you know, my way isn't the only way. Uh, but but what what I've learned uh, that, that that I have a uh, treatable disease. Unfortunately, it's not curable yet, right? They haven't given a pill that uh, has allowed me to be a social heroin user, um, <laughs> right? So it, it, it's either all or nothing. Um, and, and so the good news, though, it is treatable. And there are certain things that I need to do on a daily basis to be able to have that daily reprieve from the drugs and the alcohol. And, and so... What that means is doing something for somebody else, going to meet, you know, go to going to meeting, you know, calling uh, a friend or calling my sponsor. Uh, it's really not that difficult. Sometimes uh, that doesn't mean that it's not easy. Um, uh, but but, you know, it's so crazy that if you had told me, you know, 25 years ago that if I just had to do one thing for an hour every day, um, I could get high as much as I want. I would do it in a second. Right. But yet I have this, this this prescription that's worked for me for 25 years. That's for whatever reason, there's a blockage that the reason I'm sober for 25 years is because I do these things. And when I don't do these things, yes, I might not drink and drug, but I can just cause as much wreckage uh, and damage as, as somebody who does drink and use. So not being in the middle of the boat means, uh, you know, doing the bare minimum, I guess you could say, if that, and that would look like for me, the bare minimum is three meetings a month. Uh, and in normal middle of the boat, taking the class is three a week um, and working with other people and, and, you know, doing that daily thing to keep me grounded and remember uh, that it can't be everybody else's fault uh, and that it takes two to make a relationship and it takes two to ruin a relationship. So that's sort of what it means uh, to me. Now it might mean other things to other people, right? So other people could be, uh, you know, have to go to a meeting every day um, or, you know, some people are meeting once a, a, a month or, you know, again, the, the middle of the boat is, is a moving target for, for certain people and some work and some don't. That's so interesting that even at 25 years clean and sober, you know, three times a week is, you know, that's, that's a lot of support that you get from that program. And, um, it just goes to show that, you know, it's a chronic condition, right? Yeah. It's not a cute condition, yeah. condition that we, we fix and one and done, but it's a way of life. And, um, you speak about it so fondly, I can hear what it means to you. I'm going to ask you to explain another term you mm -hmm. used, and that was you mentioned an inventory. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so that is, um, uh, you know, this word resentment. Uh, I think everybody, uh, whether they've struggled with alcohol and, and drug addiction or not, uh, we have resentments. And, and, and I'll use the marriage because I think it's, you know, one of those ones that are deep. You know, it's, it's like parental and... Uh, a divorce or, or sort of some of the, the biggest resentments, at least I have in my life or have had in my life. Uh, and, and what it is, is the basis understanding is that it takes two to make a relationship and it takes two to ruin a relationship. Now there are, I think it's very important to, to say this and, and Nikki and I sort of, when we talk about our marriage, uh, say that there obviously are some caveats to that, right? Uh, one being 
uh, physical abuse or uh, sexual abuse. You know, or there are some things that just are outside of our pay grade. That that, but for the most part, it takes two uh, to make a relationship and take two to ruin it. So when I have an, uh, a resentment, I need to take an inventory of not the other person's necessarily, although they're listed, of the other person's wrongdoings or what I perceive uh, doing wrong. But it's primarily to find out what my part is in that relationship. So when I talk about uh, the inventory for, for, for Nikki and that relationship, the main purpose of that was to figure out, okay, let's take a honest look, fearless look at what you did because you haven't been able to see your part in this marriage for a long time. It was all her fault. And, and, and so what I, the process was, okay, I get to list my grievances with Nikki. Great. That was easy. Right. Um, but then it was, what is Ben's part? And at that point, it's not any, uh, you know, I did this, but she, it, no buts, no ands has nothing to do with Nikki. It's just purely my part. Some of it could be benign with people, uh, some it's benign is it's how I react to him or her. But for me, it was, it was behaviors, right? It was that I just wasn't present and, and who wants to be married to that? Um, so it's, it, it's a process that I, I go through that, that I've been taught to, to find, and it's helped me in so many relationships in my life, not just with Nikki, but that was the most important one um, because of the life that we have, you know, today uh, and how we've been able to shield our son for the most part, uh, from, uh, you know, our decisions, but, but it's, it, it, it was a process of, you know, just like taking inventory uh, of your financial inventory or your, uh, you know, cabinet inventory, or if you have a restaurant, your food inventory, uh, but it's an honest look at your behaviors. Mm-hmm. And then comes amends, which you mentioned as well. And I love that you knew enough to let go of the outcome of mm. an amends because it's easy for for people to think, well, amends is where you go and you say sorry to people and they forgive you. But that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you explain yeah, what and that, the purpose yeah. and process is there? I mean, really, it, it, it's almost, uh, I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but it's almost a selfish act. Uh, in the sense that I can't afford to carry around uh, a dirty side of my street. Like I can't afford, I haven't been given that luxury as a human being to hold on to resentments, to hold on to uh, the, the hatred for people. So uh, I have to, you know, clean up my side of the street. I am only in control of my actions. I have no control. I had no control how Nikki was going to respond. I had no control over how anybody's going to respond. The only thing that I can control is my uh, intention, my actions, and the way I react to other people's actions. And so going into that, I knew, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I knew enough that, uh, you know, no life decision could be made in the frame of mind I was on or, or the baggage that I was bringing into those decisions. And by baggage, I mean, you know, Nikki's fault, the resentment, the, you know, disdain for her. And so going in, 
hopefully, you know, that she would have uh, accepted it or, but I've had it go completely sideways. Um, you know, like you said, where people all of a sudden it's kumbaya and they love me. And, you know, I've had some, don't ever call me again. Um, but, and, and those are unfortunate, but those are of my making. Uh, but it, even after in those circumstances, I don't have to walk around the rest of my life thinking about that part of my life. Right. So the beautiful thing about Nikki uh, and my relationship is that it was built on uh, forgiveness and accountability, or I should say accountability and then forgiveness. But uh, you know, we don't have to walk around the rest of our lives. Like so many couples I see with this toxicity, this hatred, this disdain, uh, you know, feeding kids poison, hoping the other one dies, uh, the other spouse dies, and, and because we cleaned up our sides of the street uh, and we were able to move forward. Uh, so, you know, the amends doesn't, it, it, you said it brilliantly. I mean, then all of a sudden it's, hey, okay, I forgive you. I mean, if you go in with that expectation, that's just going to be another resentment. You're just planning another resentment. Yeah, that, that's actually, uh, the word for that would be manipulation. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. And, and I got to be very careful of that. I mean, truly, like uh, a lot of the time was spent on on doing it so it wasn't manipulative, right? And it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, practicing in this one. And a lot of the other ones, the big ones I've done, it's like it's a practice that it's, you know, just being honest and open and vulnerable, right? And, and for me... Those are words that just, those are words and emotions that don't come naturally. You, you had mentioned humble after I got done talking. I was like, hmm, never been accused of that. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, you are um, mentioned a program of anonymity, and yet I introduced you using your full name. And mm-hmm. that is because you and Nikki uh, talk publicly and help others um, understand how the process of divorce can be a positive solution. I mean, it's meant to be a solution to a problem. It's not meant to be another problem or a bigger problem than what preceded it. Um, So that and, and your story of recovery and addiction, you know, rolls into the lessons that you understood and project through what you're teaching other people about how to have a positive divorce experience, or at least a more positive divorce experience. So, Talk to me a little bit about that. Tell us about that project mm-hmm. and uh, and where people can learn more about it. Yeah, so, um, you know, like I've, I think people, at least through my, eyes, uh, through my story, is that I have made the most change, uh, been willing uh, to be motivated to make the most change through the power of relatedness. I think it is, for me, the most important feeling uh and, and, and the most uh, has been a motivator for change in my life than anything else. I mean, I sat with plenty of doctors and therapists and, uh, you know, they told me I had a problem with drinking my mom for years and my parents, but it wasn't until I sat with another alcoholic that I could relate to, um, that I knew that that person knew what it was like to be to hell, uh, that I started all of a sudden my ears perked up and I started, you know, listening. So, uh, you know, we um, got obviously got divorced. Just went about our sort of normal uh, life uh, on you know social media. All of a sudden, became a thing, and you know we started 
our, our, our relationship started regressing again, beyond what we could possibly ha- have mentioned. And, and I love the way you said adding, you know, look, divorce sucks. There's r- breakups suck. Um, it, but so often because they're not handled, they become a suck for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, and, you know, this toxicity for the rest of your life. And, and, and so we would, you know, start doing family dinners together. And we would start then start going on family vacations together. And all this was sort of chronicled on like we do on social media. Uh, and people were started asking questions, right? Like, what is really going on in your family? Like, is this a polygamous <laughs> or, uh, you know, swinger sort of thing? Uh, uh, and we would explain to people that, and then people started reaching out because they were going through their own divorce and asking us for advice. Um, and then, uh, it hit me. I said, we have a story that could help people. Um, does anybody want their garbage thrown out in you know, the world? No. Um, but I, like you said, the anonymity thing, I was 22 when I got sober. I understand the anonymity thing and I understand the consequences some people have to face, you know, by, by, by if people found out they were, uh, you know, an alcoholic or an addict for me, it didn't matter. Right. So I would tell people at the bus stop when I was, you know, four months sober, Hey, I'm sober, you know? Um, so it's never been an issue for me. Uh, and, and so, you know, my vulnerabilities, my shortcomings, uh, I have, I've sort of never really had a problem, uh, sharing. So, uh, the book was my idea. Um, I asked Nikki, she said no, uh, uh, cause she's not, quite as open as I am. Uh, but I wasn't going to write this book without her. It just didn't, uh, you know, I've said it, I think three times it takes two to make a relationship. It takes two to ruin it, but it definitely takes two and took two and now actually four because we're both remarried, but to make this relationship. Um, and then, you know, I kept on talking to her about it and talking to her about it. And she eventually agreed and, 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 and for her to, to, to write the things she writes in the book, uh, I'm just, and I don't mean to sound this as condescending, but just so proud of her, uh, for getting in that uncomfortable space, uh, you know, to hopefully help somebody else. Um, and she, she, she did a wonderful job. Uh, we go back sort of, uh, I don't know if you ever heard, uh, anybody's seen the show, the affair, uh, but they take one, it's an hour show and they take a half hour, same, same circumstance, same situation one person's perspective for half the show and then the other perspective uh, for the other half. So we go and alternate chapters, you know, the, the coffee shop meeting where we made the amends is, is one uh, part where, you know, you, you see both of our points of view, but like I said, it would just would never have made sense for me to write this book without the person that made this possible, without the other person that made this possible. And, and, and then because, uh, uh, <laughs> It took us four years to write it, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, then was about to go to print. And then I just started realizing what a big role uh, our spouses play in the situation, how hard they have it, right? And they have it great compared to other situations where people have to get remarried or find a new husband or wife and they have to walk into this toxic, uh, you know, baggage ridden relationship. So our spouses sort of walked into a relatively speaking, good situation, but they've added to it. They've thrived. They've, they've had, we call the books uh, titled our happy divorce. They have thrived and they have helped our happy divorce 
be what it is today. And so I thought it, they needed to write their chapters in the book, um, which they did. And so, you know, Nikki and I go back and forth, Nadia, my wife and Chad, uh, Nikki's husband have a chapter. And then it's topped off by our son um, who uh, unprovoked, you know, three years ago, uh, his high school uh, entrance exam was right about uh, somebody you admire. And uh, he wrote, again, unprovoked. It wasn't like Nick and I made him do this, but he, he said his parents for what they have done and what they've accomplished. Um, and so that's the ending uh, of the book because what better person to say, uh, you know, why we set out on this journey um, than to hear from our son um, in his own words. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's the name of the book. You know, we're, again, we're not lawyers, we're not doctors, we're not therapists, um, but uh, we've 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 taken from our life experience um, and 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 made it into something positive. Where I could have easily repeated the same mistakes and the same uh, consequences as my parents did. Um, and, and so, it's funny because I sent the book to my mom. Um, and the story of her being controlling and, uh, you know, Jewish mom. Uh, and, uh, cause I wanted to make sure she was okay with it before it went to print. It wasn't like the, the, the this wasn't a Kennedy tell all book that we were trying to use, uh, you know, my parents, you know, problems as to sell books or to get, you know, famous. Cause uh, so I wanted their sign off and, uh, she read it. And then she called me up and she said, I am sorry. In typical Jewish mother fashion, by the way, uh, said, I'm sorry. I ruined your whole life. Uh, and I told her, I said, mom, you don't understand. Like if you have a crystal ball and you created some time machine and you could go back and change anything in my life or what happened with you and dad, um, or, you know, take away that first time I tried, you know, heroin or whatever, I wouldn't take you up on that offer, even if it was available. Cause I'm a true believer that everything happens for a reason. Um, and I had to go through what I had to go through with my parents. Uh, so I didn't repeat those mistakes with my son. And, and he wouldn't have been, you know, he might've been in a different position if I hadn't had to go through, uh, with, with, with my parents. So we're all built of, we're all built up of experiences in this thing called the human condition. Um, and, and with each experience and with each, for me, unfortunately, I don't know if it's like that for everybody, but, uh, the most, most growth comes at the lowest points. Uh, and most motivation for growth and change comes at my lowest points divorce, uh, you know, addiction and, and so many other, uh, things, but it's a great motivator. Pain is a great motivator for change for me. And, and, but through each one and, and going through each problem and not around it, uh, I become that much more of an evolved person. I have a tremendous amount of evolving to do <laughs> still. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm a flawed human being, but, but, uh, you know, this human condition that we have, uh, it, it is important to realize that it's all sort of, uh, made up of piece, pieces of experience. And so this is what that book is about. It's just our experience, uh, around our divorce and hopefully it'll inspire others, uh, that, that it doesn't have to be, I don't remember the, the movie, but War of the Roses, it doesn't have to be um, something that has to stick with you for the rest of your life. And it can actually be something positive as crazy as that sounds. Mm. 
Ben, thank you for your time today. It's been great getting to know you, and I really appreciate your story and your willingness to share. Before I let you go, how can our listeners find you, find the book, get in touch with you if they want to give you feedback on this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything is at Our Happy Divorce. Um, feel free to reach out to me. if you. It, it, uh, my personal uh, um, socials are Ben Swig Radio, but the book... Uh, is everything our happy divorce. So that's easy. Uh, website, we have some resources. Uh, if, if DM me, if you want to ask a question, um, we're, we're not, you know, we don't, we're not, we're not counselors or, or divorce coaches, so we don't charge, but we, we just want to help other people. Uh, and that's what this project's about. So feel free to reach out. We have a Facebook group um, uh, for support, solution oriented. Please come with solutions. Uh, it's because it's too it's too easy to get wrapped up in the problems, um, but we try to be as solution oriented as, as as possible. Thank you again for your time today, listeners. That's all for this week. I hope you're staying well. I appreciate your continued ongoing support of this show with your messages and your feedback. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong. Cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the point I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Just want to